this week on the Back Table Podcast. I used to tell my staff that no matter how excited we get somebody on a pitch from a venture capital group or a potential acquirer, they have to bring that excitement and that information back to their investment committee, which usually occurs within about a week or so. And on the committee, they're going to be facing six other huge skeptics, right? Well, what do you mean you think their growth is going to be X, Y, and Z? Can they demonstrate it, right? And there's going to be a whole series of boxes that you have to check. For example, the first time we got a diligence list from a venture capital group, a very large one that had, you know, tens of billion under management, I think it was 27 pages long was the the diligence list that we got. And, you know, these probably 10 to 15 questions on each page and literally took about a week to go through that and successfully answer all the questions. And yeah, it's, it's an arduous trip. There's no doubt. You, you just got to be prepared for that. And you absolutely cannot do it all. And you have to be pretty humble about that. If you think you can do everything from development to commercialization, then chances are you're, you're probably not going to, to make it. And so you have to be able to lean on people and bring in the proper people who know what they're doing. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Nashville and co-founder of an early stage imaging company in the pulmonary space. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest this week, Dr. Bob Smaus. Bob is an interventional radiologist and serial entrepreneur who's been involved with several startups, most notably as the founder of Brightwater Medical, which was acquired by Merit in 2019 for $50 million. He's currently president and CEO of Respiratory Motion and has a lot of knowledge to share with the Backtable community. With that, Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show and welcome. Hey, thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate the intro. It's very complete and glad to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, let's get right to it. So, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, you know, a uh, non-traditional student. Um, I ran a couple of businesses before medical school, went into medical school and uh, decided to go into radiology and asked somebody a lot smarter than me what specialty would be good to go into and became an interventional radiologist. So I worked as an IR, I'd say for about three years in Florida is where I trained. And then a couple of my friends and colleagues moved up to Peoria, Illinois to a very large practice that they liked and they brought me up there later, along with my wife, who's a diagnostic radiologist. And then I worked for about 20, 25 years in Peoria. And during that time, started publishing and presenting and kind of got on the KOL circuit, if you would. And then it grew from there. All right. That's awesome. Now, you said something that I would like to circle back to. You said you were running a few businesses before med school. What <laughs> What were you doing? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, what you call a nuclear pharmacist. You know, it's a, uh, I used to dispense nuclear medicine to the various hospitals and imaging centers and ran a laboratory in Tampa, of all places, and did that for a while. Yeah, so I, I did that before. So I knew about, you know, hiring and firing and profit and loss and, you know, running a spreadsheet. And those kind of things. I got a little bit bored and said, well, let's let's go to medical school and see if I can do something perhaps a little bit more uh, interesting to me. And that that's what I ended up doing. Right. So how important, I'm just going to skip a little bit here. How important do you think knowing all of those things, running a P&L sheet, uh, hiring and firing, you knew that before you ever went to med school, before you started Brightwater. Yeah. Uh, 
Did that come into play? Did you feel more comfortable having that knowledge? Yeah, yeah absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I, I really, <laughs> to be honest, you know, I, I thought about the whole thing, you know, should I go yep. back and get an MBA and really learn sure. about it? And, and the bottom line is, you know, as a physician, you bring a certain set of talents that are very important for the, uh, for the business, right? And it's really not number crunching. It's really not, I don't think, running the employee bank. You know, we, we kind of serve as the visionary in a sense as a founder and as a, as a physician, but also the chief medical officer. And, and those are very valuable. And, you know, I, I found people a lot smarter than me that could, you know, do the MBA role, do the marketing role, do the sales, uh, you know, the CFO and the controller role, all of those things. So I would say, you know, it, it was nice to have, but certainly by no means a need to have uh, to do your own startup. Okay. All right. Great. No, I just thought that was very interesting. So you practiced for 20 years. What'd your practice look like? Well, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, we had uh, six advanced practice nurses. Um, we had full admitting abilities and all the general hospital floors, as well as the ICUs. And we had a lot of uh, endovascular procedures. I would say probably 60 to 70% was peripheral vascular disease than interventional oncology. Uh, some neurovascular imaging and stroke rescue, and then the standard biopsies, tips, uh, dialysis. Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty dynamic, busy practice uh, that was very satisfying. Yeah. That sounds very robust. Uh, what was your favorite procedure? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I, I would say probably a PVD, you know, okay. uh, staying above the knee, although I went below the knee, but doing something, a revascularization procedure above the knee. You like the immediate gratification. I like the immediate gratification. That and putting an IVC filter in. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can it get much better, right? That's so. right. <laughs> That's right. Okay, great. So when did you stop practicing? Yeah, you know, once I started Brightwater, I went part-time. I needed the time to set up. And, you know, I, I think as a physician, you can kind of make an analogy that if you are going to put a show together for a stage production, you're kind of the producer, right? You're the intermediary between the money and the talent. So I went part-time to raise the money, the seed funding, and put together a skeleton crew. And then once I raised my Series A and got enough money in the bank, um, then I quit practicing and did Brightwater full-time as the CEO. Uh, was it scary? Yeah, it, it kind of was. I can tell you the, the hardest part, at least initially, uh, to be quite frank, was I was used to coming in to the hospital every day, right? You know, five days a week and sometimes more. And then interacting with my colleagues and, you know, doing the procedures and dealing with patients and all of those. And I was very comfortable with that. And then when I, you know, dropped it down to part-time, I felt like I was trying to find myself. When I worked the 20 hours in the hospital, no problem. I knew what was going on. I had history there. But then trying to network and develop the company and interface, uh, you know, with all the investors and, and do the pitches and understanding what's in a pitch and, and, you know, how to set it up and the contracts that you do and the convertible notes and the, the pre-money and post-money valuation, all those things were new to me. So that was a little uncomfortable and I missed practicing to be quite honest. I would say about two years after that, I was able to raise the series A funding and we were on the way. And by that time I had, I had assembled a board, uh, of directors and yeah, frankly, they said, you know, we need you full time to run the company. So I stepped out of clinical practice entirely and started running Brightwater full time. Wow. Uh, I I'd like to get into that at, so at some point down here. I, I do want to ask, you know, a lot of times 
your investors will want a seasoned CEO to come in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me so, too. Me too. <laughs> I bet, but I want to get to that in a minute. Let's start. Let's go back. So, yeah, you when did you get involved with with medical device entrepreneurship? You were clearly an entrepreneur during med school with your nuclear pharmacy, and then when did you get back into being an entrepreneur? It was funny. I I was very happy in my practice. It's kind of a I think you call it a privademia, right? Half private practice, half academia. We had fellows and we had residents, but we were private practice. And I liked that. And then I just started to do some publishing and publishing led to, you know, podium presence. I got tagged by a few companies to be on their scientific advisory boards and, you know, kind of worked around on the speaking circuit. And that was fun. And then I remember I got a call out of a blue from an engineer who was working out of all places, Ireland, right? Galway, Ireland, which is a hotbed for medical device companies. For sure. And said, hey, there's a there's two companies I'm affiliated with, and uh, yeah, they're, they're both up your alley in IVC filters and peripheral vascular disease, stents, et cetera. And do you mind if the CEO flies out? He's, you know, he's the chairman of the board of one and the CEO of the other. And so that's where I met my current business partner, Chaz Taylor, who was had a long history of working for Bard at the president level and then did his own medical startup. So we worked on two medical device startups, I'd say probably 10 to 12 years ago together. And that's where I really, you know, saw that there was something a little bit, for me at least, more rewarding than big companies, you know, QE2 versus a race boat, right? There's a lot of quick movements in a startup. A lot of risk, without a doubt, but a lot of excitement. And so working as a KOL and uh, a little bit more for those two startups really got my interest going. Yeah, I, I thought I'd go ahead and do my own. I had a few ideas that I wanted to explore. And so at that point, I said, well, you know, maybe I should start an incubator and, and take a bigger look at, you know, what I have and, and get an understanding if there's something there that might be interesting to try. Absolutely. Okay. So it seems like it was a gradual process. Uh, you became a KOL. We hear this a lot, you know, uh, become an expert in your field, uh, work with some of the corporate strategics, helping them with their products, then, you know, maybe move to the earlier stage, becoming advisors, chief medical officer of those, and then, and then jumping out on your own. So what was it specifically about the startup life that, that you, that drew you in? It felt a little bit up my alley in the sense that it was a business operation. There was a clear set, you know, value propositions that you could offer to someone and that would have value. And I, I think the ability to build something, to run something, kind of grow, go for the brass ring, right? You know, the exit was very exciting. To be honest, I didn't know how much work would be involved with it. And it was incredibly difficult to do without a doubt. But I, I think just the try something on the edge, something difficult and see if I could grow something and actually get it to an exit. That was the enticement of, you know, this startup. Uh, I think that's perfect. I think it's a risk reward play from what I'm hearing from you. And there's a lot more risk involved than working for a strategic, but the reward is potentially higher and you take more ownership of it. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And any physician who goes into a startup, I would say they, you know, they bring family, friends, colleagues into it as investors. So the risk really to me was not letting down my investor base. I mean, that was absolutely number one and it's incredibly motivating, but it's also incredibly frightening. You know, when you have rough times, right? You don't know if the company is going to survive. 
uh, 90% of startups in the medical device space will fail. And this is from seasoned and even green entrepreneurs. And 82% of those fail because of the lack of funding. So there's a lot of risk involved, which I didn't know about. I didn't know it was that risky. You know, that comes with the anxiety and a lot of nervousness, no doubt. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. I think it's hard to know until you're doing it. The ups and downs, the roller coaster ride, the highs are very high. The lows are very low, but it's, I mean, it's absolutely a blast. I, I met a couple guys that were incredibly instrumental in, in Brightwater. One was uh, Kent Stalker, good friend of mine now, and he okay. was my vice president of engineering for Brightwater. And then Dan Halbrun, who was vice president of marketing and helped out in sales for Brightwater. And I remember talking to Kent early on and he goes, Doc, I've done several startups. He worked for years for guidance, then went out and did startups. As an engineer, he helped out startups and he goes, you're going to have the highs and lows. You're going to have the ups and downs. And, you know, you have to really control the positives and control the negatives because it will be up and down and just try to keep a level, steady pace because we're going to have missteps. We're going to get past it and keep going. And that was incredibly important because we did. We had incredible highs, we had incredible lows. And uh, I, I kind of tell the story that a couple of times during the process, I honest to God, I would go into the restroom expecting I would have to vomit <laughs> you know, because it got so nerve wracking, but everything turned out fine. Never did, but it came close a couple of times. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to ask at what point that happened. <laughs> um, I, I definitely want to hear those, those stories um, when we get into Brightwater. So tell me about this incubator. It seems like you went from KOL to helping with early startups. And then you said, I want to do this on my own. Uh, let's start an incubator and, and see what we can pull out of it and kind of harvest from it and, and spin out. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the whole reason for an incubator is that I was able to bring on some external funding mm -hmm. to do some analysis and you know evaluation of what I thought I had. And I had three concepts I was working on. And so in order to, to bring on this external money, I needed some kind of a structure. So I set up a simple LLC, which is a pass-through. I named it ELG Co. And then from there, I could dump all of these devices, ideas. And I had, I'd say of the three device ideas, I had patents on two of them. I could dump it in there and do what I call a 360-degree analysis. And basically look at the mousetrap that I think I could develop get an understanding of all the various components that would need to be known before I went out there to raise funds and really spin out one of those devices into a proper device medical company. And so that's what the incubator was all about. And what was included in this? First off, was this uh, entity, ELG Code, this was a separate entity that you raise uh, some angel funding or something to put into so that you could go through the process of vetting the technology. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it still exists today. And it's really not for profit necessarily, but it is there to set up all the accounting, the office space, any equipment to hire people to, you know, be able to transfer monies, you know, to do IP searches, whatever's needed. And then from that point, you know, if I think I have something, I can spin it out to a C corporation, which is required if you're going to do proper funding, right? And Correct. to get convertible node and eventually issue stocks into the company. And that's, uh, no, that's, I think there are several incubators that do things like that. The Foundry, yeah. Exploramed with Josh Macauer, uh, they're, they're just perpetual machines that just create new technology and, and then spin it out. 
tell me with these three patents, did you yep. pay for the patents yourself or did you have funding or how did, did you work with a patent attorney? Yes and no. Some of them I paid for, some were paid for by the incubator, okay. but absolutely had a patent attorney. You know, you do a provisional application, just it's a stake in the ground to give yourself about 12 months to see if you have something that's interesting. And then, you know, after that you go for the patent, right? So for Brightwater, as an example, for the Convertex, which we spun out into Brightwater, uh, that one I had a patent on before I put into the incubator. Another one I was in the process of getting a patent. And the third one uh, was a device that was, I'd say, 99% developed inside the incubator. And then we were on the precipice of going for patents and decided not to based okay. upon the business evaluation. How long did it take to get the patent on the Convertex issued? Yeah, it took about, I think, about four years to do that. Good Lord. I mean, yeah, that's, I, I mean, it's, uh, that's how long it takes unless you do a, a, you know, an expedited review or fast track or track one, I believe it's called now. They can actually issue you a decision within a year, I believe it is, uh, but you have to pay extra money, obviously, of course. Yes. And you know what? I, I, I don't think you need to have a patent. I'd say you patently do not need to have a patent when <laughs> you start your business, but you do need to get advice that it is something you can protect with a patent eventually. Right. So in a similar fashion, if you were to do a startup with another device, you don't need regulatory approval before starting the business, right? But mm -hmm. you do think you have a clear pathway to regulatory approval. And that just needs to be understood. Absolutely. For investors, for everybody, uh, they need, you need to have a clear vision of the device, the regulatory pathway, the funding all the way through. Now, in the incubator phase, you, you decided obviously on the ConvertX. So tell me about this methodical 360 degree analysis you did. What did, what, what factors did you look into and what were the important ones and why? Yeah. Okay. So we, we had several uh, devices that we were considering and we did analyses on all of them. One was a dialysis catheter. Another one was a device to treat endoluminal graft leaks, you know, that you get. And then the third one was the Convertex, which is this convertible nephew-ureteral and biliary stent, right? So what we did, the, the, the first thing I would say is that we kind of divided them into as a, a red water, blue water technology. And it's, it's a term I didn't invent. And I, to be honest, I'm not certain who invented this, but red water is something that's not too difficult. It's got a lot of predicate devices out there. It's close to the shoreline, but it's red water because you have a lot of people in that space. You have a lot of sharks. Mm. It's, it's pretty challenging. And then the blue water technologies are usually the PMA or the long regulatory process uh, products, things that require, you know, fairly robust clinical trial to get through. Um, it's quite a ways away from the shoreline. It takes a lot of capital, a lot of time. You're talking 10 to 15 years, but it's blue water because you don't have a lot of sharks, right? There's not a lot of people in that space, but there are certainly a lot of hurdles when it comes to time and capital required to get it. It's a big, big play, uh, big, big reward, but it's quite challenging. So we looked at that and some were red water, some were blue water, and then Convertix was kind of in between. It had predicate devices that we could leverage for a regulatory approval path, path, or pathway that wasn't too challenging. It did have reimbursement codes, uh, most of which we could you know, leverage as well, but it was a completely different kind of device that nobody had anything close to it. There were no direct competitors to our device. So that was a little bit of the blue water. So Dan Heilbrunn and myself, Dan was, um, he was an engineer by training, did an MBA at Michigan State and really worked as a marketing and not in a pejorative sense, but he was kind of a bean counter. He understood the numbers 
behind it. So Dan and I worked together for a long time uh, doing the market analysis on all three devices. And without a doubt, the Convertex seemed to be the best device to move forward. So we had a product that had a relatively benign regulatory pathway, and that was a 510K with predicates. It had a highly differentiated appearance, which was kind of interesting, we thought. It also spanned between a red water and a blue water. So there were no direct competitors to our device. And we could still sell a very credible uh, economic story to the you know stakeholders and medical care, the patient, the insurance companies, the hospitals, et cetera, because based upon the, the savings of basically the device eliminated procedure, so the potential to save a costly procedure. But I would say the first step after we realized we have something, again, we could patent, we could get through the regulatory process. Then we spent about literally three to four months looking at the market opportunity. And it was tough because since it is a unique product, it was difficult to find out exactly what the market opportunity was. And that took a lot of work, took a lot of work, time, and some capital to buy some market reports to understand. And then I remember Dan called me and he goes, hey, it looks like the numbers are supportive. And there are certain thresholds you want to get above to get obviously to get interest from a, you know, a serious investor like a VC or to get interest from a strategic for an acquisition. And so typically that number is you have to show a market opportunity if everybody in the world could use your device of around a billion dollars or more. So it's a pretty high hurdle to step over, but it's very important to do that early on in the process. That's, uh, no, I mean, market opportunity. How long did you spend looking at the market opportunity? Yeah, I'd say about three to four months. Yeah, it was, it wasn't straightforward, Brian. It wasn't clear cut. It did take a lot of work and analysis and all that has to be supported because eventually when you go for a fundraise or an exit, that has to be in the data room and it has to be credible and it has to be, you know, reviewed by those who are going to either, you know, invest or buy the company. I found it when, when I was at Stanford Biodesign, we spent so much, it was almost like a graduate program in, in, in marketing, um, or determining market size. It became so critical to be able to sift through literature, population-based studies, to look at procedure volumes, look at Medicare data, Medi Medicare Part B summaries, to try to find out, you know, CPT codes, and to determine what these volumes of procedures truly are and where what impact your potential solution can have. I find I've probably spent more time. <laughs> More time on that than I ever would have ever would have thought uh, to be able to to show these uh, you know Tam Sam Psalms uh, your target markets uh, to be accurate. It's it's incredible how much how obscure this data is out there. It's no one no one just puts it together for you, um, especially if you're coming up with a new device. I mean you 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 pretty much have to infer a lot of things based on really good data. Yeah, you, you really do. And it is challenging. It will be challenged as well. So the source is important. Mm -hmm. It has to be credible. And, and one of the first things that you'll hear, I mean, if, if somebody's looking for an acquisition of your company, they'll spend in time and effort and capital, they'll spend up close to a million dollars doing the analysis to see if they want to buy your company. And, you know, they want to make sure that the view is worth the hike, right? Mm -hmm. So the market has to be big enough, robust enough and interesting enough. And, also, adoption has to be there too. So one thing that we did early on in the process is we sent out a survey to 
because this is a device for interventional radiologists. So we sent out a survey to practicing interventional radiologists. And I think we had 10 or 12 questions on it. And Dan was very familiar with these types of surveys, having done them for Guidant Medical and, and many other companies as well. So we sent that out and, and to get an idea of what the physician interest would be, and it came out very high. So that's always good to have as well, right? So you're not just building a better mousetrap for yourself. There's actually some type of market and user adoption and validation that you'll need, right, to raise money and to sell the company as well. So important. Absolutely critical. This may be the first time we've talked really a lot about on the show about interviewing physicians or key stakeholders, so to speak. In this case, physicians who are the end users. It's critically important to have that and present that data to your investors because you'll find out very quickly where a lot of the bumps are that you need to smooth out before you go fundraising. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, most startups will have some type of an internal pivot, right? They might go from one market to a different market. They might go from a general or broad application to a niche application. In my case, we had a device mainly for yurters mm -hmm. and then about Oh, I'd say a couple of years into it, maybe even three years into it, we heard from the market that our market opportunity probably isn't big enough mm -hmm. and then took it back to the drawing board and said, you know, can we use this for an internal external biliary catheter? And the answer was yes, we could do it for the biliary space and then remodeled it. And that basically doubled our market opportunity and added a little bit more sizzle to the company. And I think that was really instrumental in not only getting investment, but also getting an exit in the company. Oh, that's incredible. That's an incredible way to take the technology and, you know, it's a platform technology, right? I mean, you're taking, and, and maybe you should describe the ConvertX uh, for our audience first, and then we can kind of get into that. Yeah. I mean, it, there is a subset of patients with a ureteral blockage that just can't be traversed in the standard urological retrograde approach, right? Working from the bladder upward towards the kidney. Mm -hmm. And the urologists would do that procedure. Correct. Urologists would do that, but for those cases, then we would, of course, go directly through the kidney to get access. Our mechanical advantage is significantly higher. If the patient's prone, we're working with imaging, sophisticated guide wires and, and imaging equipment, right? So we can watch that completely. Um, you know, as you can imagine, trying to support a flimsy catheter wire inside of a bladder, uh, this hollow viscous is very challenging. Hmm. But, you know, working from the top down through the flank of the patient, through the kidney, our success rate is much, much higher, but it comes at the risk of an interventional procedure that could have some bleeding associated with it because you're drilling through the kidney. And so the way we typically do that in IR is we start off with a nephrostomy catheter, even though we want to put a stent in, we don't do that. We put a nephrostomy in, we let the tract mature for about seven to 10 days, sometimes a little bit longer, decompress the kidney, uh, let the urine flow into a collection bag, and then we bring the patient back in for a second procedure. And now we have a mature track and we can go ahead and cross the ureteral obstruction. We're well over 90% success rate and then go ahead and dilate and put in a, you know, double pigtail stent. And then you pull the, you pull the nephrostomy out and there's no risk of bleeding because you have a mature track without an actual bleeding. And so the Convertex is a nephroureteral catheter. It goes in all the way to the bladder on day one. It's got a pigtail loop in the bladder, a pigtail loop in the kidney, and then it has this extra thing coming to the outside that we cap off. And that extra tubing that comes to the outside, you can use it to drain urine, inject contrast, saline, whatever you want. But the most important thing about it is it tamponades the access tract in the kidney. And so after seven days, 
or seven to 10 days, we would recommend that the patient come back into the office or a quick IR, you know, lab checkup. And if everything's looking good, you could twist a knob and pull a string. And that extra part that comes to the outside would detach from the internal stent cleanly and come completely out of the patient. So now you've decompressed, you've put a ureteral stent in, you've, you've done it with just one procedure, one invasive procedure instead of two. And that was an economic model that we could do to show that there was significant savings to all stakeholders. You know, one less invasive procedure and anesthesia for the patient, one less cost of an invasive procedure to the hospital because we showed that the reimbursement did not cover the expense. And then one less procedure for a third party payer to pay for. And that was, that resonated and was attractive to all the stakeholders. Yeah. I think you, what you're, what you're talking about here is aligning stakeholders and this one device aligned all stakeholders. Patients didn't have to have an extra procedure. Everybody saved money on this. So it was a win, 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 uh, going forward and, and, and lowering costs for the healthcare system in general is, is, has been a huge push and it, and it, you really hit the trend, I think, you know, uh, hit the nail right on the head with the trend. And I, I, it sounds like it ticked all the boxes for you. Yeah, but you know what? It, it was a little bit of a tough story, and I'll tell you why. When we did the ureteral product, the economic sales point here was that we were saving money. Mm -hmm. And we could show it. We could demonstrate it. We can actually show savings money. But that's the hardest money to pitch because everybody's device, quote unquote, saves the hospital money. And they don't believe it, right? Because that's, it's also called the soft money. Now on the biliary side, by putting your ureteral stent in on procedure one, it really had a significant upcharge of about $1,200 more for the physician and the hospital by just putting a stent in on day one versus a drainage catheter on day one, and then coming back and flipping that out for a stent later. For whatever reason, I have no idea, but CMS actually had very significant augmentation and increase in coding if you could put the biliary stent in on day one and that you could do with the Convertex. So there, that was a hard money pitch that was resonated cleanly that there was a significant upcharge that actually more than paid for the device itself. Another hard part we had with Brightwater, I mean, when, when we could credibly pitch this, it was really good, but ureteral stents, you know, biliary plastic stents, those are commodity items, which is problematic. I mean, nobody really wants to invest in a commodity product. And also they're, you know, $80 to $120, maybe $150. And our Convertix was $1,500. So we had to credibly convince uh, the market that we could not only, you know, succeed in a commodity space, which is challenging, but that we could also charge nearly 10 times maybe 15 times more for our product, our product, than what is typically sold on the commodity side. And we were successful, but it took a lot of work and effort. And I can tell you there were not 100% believers in this, that because of the economic savings, eliminating the procedure, plus the risk savings as well, that we could charge more for that. And we, it's not that we were trying to be greedy. We just had to have that augmented you know, selling price in order to fund the company and then exit the company later. So okay. you, you learn these things as you, as you go on, I, I guess. Right. 
Without a doubt. And it sounds like, why is this so important? Okay, for the listeners, this is so important to go through all of the economics of of the procedure, of the disease state, the impact to the hospital and the stakeholders, the cost of the device, the COGS, how much you can sell it for, what your margin is. This is so important even early on, even though this sounds like something maybe you would do down the road because you're building a vision to sell to your investors or to sell to corporate strategics. Uh, and you have to have all the pieces of the puzzle together so that it makes sense to these incredibly bright you know, off investors. Nobody's just going to part ways with their money if, if you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle there. And so having the vision for this is super important. And it sounds like you, you and your team spent the time to do this so that you could raise the fund and make the compelling argument that you'd thought about each piece of the puzzle and each stakeholder and how they'd be affected. Now, I am curious, who was on your team at this point? How did you as a physician, you, you're, you sound very sophisticated in terms of your knowledge of, of business. Was it always like this? Did you bring on business people that, that early on to help you? How did you, how did you build that team and, and raise funds? Yeah, you know, I think that's right what you said before. And also, just before I get into that, as physicians, you know, we do have some degree of wealth, right, that we can bring to the table. And that allows us to come up with ideas, perhaps patent them and start building prototypes, usually with our own nickel. And we can do that for a while. But I think it's incredibly important to know that there's no way in the world that you can fund a device development by yourself. You just can't do it. It's way too expensive. It's too time consuming. I'd say on the low side, if you can do it for five to $10 million, you're, you're probably doing pretty good. If you have a predicate device, something a little bit between blue water, red water technologies, maybe, you know, maybe 15 to 20, 25 million. If you have a PMA product that requires a clinical trial, then you're probably talking 50 million and up from that point. So, you know, it's, it's really important to do these analyses because you have a lot of selling to do, right? I mean, that was something I learned very quickly that your network, your Rolodex for an old person like myself is incredibly important because you're on the phone all the time reaching out. We ended up having, I think, nine CEOs who invested in the company. I'd say half or more than half of those were in the medical device space and others were non-medical device CEOs. And then a lot of physicians and KOLs also invested, but yeah, it takes a lot of information. And in the beginning, I realized we needed to know about market space and opportunity, but I didn't know what the metrics were. As a physician or as a business guy in a different space, you know, what was the number that was the right total addressable market size, right? Is it a half a million, 30 million? And I could say, speaking with physicians, they say, yeah, I have this fantastic idea. I mean, this is worth $20 million a year in sales. I'm like, woof, no, it sounds good, but you know, you're, you're way too low. You know, you need something that's much, much higher. And so with that, I would say the initial person I got on board to help me with this initial 360 analysis was Dan Halbrun because his, you know, his expertise was in marketing and business. And we worked together and he'd been in multiple companies on the medical device side. And then shortly after that, and during the same time, to a smaller degree, I engaged Kent Stalker, who himself, he, I think it was 26 medical devices he's helped bring to market. And wow. He was incredibly important. This is with big box companies and smaller startup companies as well. But he really understood the cost of a you know regulatory approval process. For example, I remember early on in Brightwater, I ended up hiring a really good engineer, but he was kind of green. 
And I asked him to put together a, you know, a Gantt list for when we start to go through regulatory approval, what it's going to cost. So he came back with, which I thought was a pretty thorough sheet of the, you know, expenses to get through all the testing, biocompatibilities, everything that it would take. And it was around 250 to $300,000. At the same time, I was just hiring Kent, bringing him on board. And I asked Kent, I go, hey, Kent, what's it going to take us to get through this regulatory process? He said it'd be about two, two and a half million dollars. And Kent was accurate almost to the hundred dollars. I mean, he just knew what it would take. It's incredibly expensive. So the core team, when I started was Dan Halbrun and myself, and then Dan Halbrun and Kent. And then from there, we just grew and grew as we realized we had something and it looked pretty interesting. The team started building and building and, you know, there, there's various ways to do this. And you were asking about, you know, getting the right CEO for, CEO for the company. And early on, we are in our element, I would say, because early on as a physician and being a developmental, as I call it, a developmental CEO, we can see the vision as far as the product and helping patients. And we tend to have a network. And if we don't have a network, we can build it up and we can raise some seed funding. I raised about $2 million in seed funding. And then from there, we can start transferring over and bringing on you know, start to delegate some of the responsibility to those who really know the business aspects of it. Dan Halbrin, I, I hired a, you know, controller for the company that helped with finances, engineering. And then from there, you can kind of grow it. And I would say even through the developmental stages of the company into early manufacturing and early marketing, I think physicians are okay. They, they're probably not over their skis, but when you become a growth stage company where you're really going to start to commercialize and raise some serious fundings, perhaps 20 or 25 million to develop a commercial team, then I would say it's time to transition out of a CEO position into a chief medical officer, perhaps a board director, and really bring on somebody who's got commercial talent. Yeah, I think that's uh, that makes a, a lot of sense. When you brought these guys on, these these experts, were you guys talking about equity? Did you bring them on? Did you pay them ca- a salary? What was the what was the arrangement like at the beginning? Because I know a lot of early stage startups can get really hung up, uh, wrapped around the axle on things like this. Yeah. And I don't blame them. You know, this can be really expensive, right? I mean, yep. you get a VP of marketing, a VP of, of engineering, you're, you're talking 200 plus for each one. I mean, that's just what they command if they've got the experience and the track record. And, and both of these guys, uh, very close friends now, but they had that, right? So I had some seed funding in the beginning. So I talked to them and we kind of dumbed down their hourly pay and I gave them some equity in the company and we balanced it out that way. So the, the dollar amount was lower, the equity was there and, you know, and then in a, above and beyond that, of course I did, you know, give some stock options that they could best that were vested over time. And then they could convert those into equity if they wanted to. And you have to learn about strike price and, you know, 409As and all of those later on. But in the beginning for the core team, it was a reduced hourly pay that was compensated by equity. And that's how we did it for actually several years. I think that's how a lot, a lot of startups get started is, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a risk as that, that team member coming on to join an early stage startup. Definitely a risk and reduced salary, of course, but you can be rewarded with the stock options and, and the equity. And so that's kind of your balance factor to keep things moving forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and my core management team did very well, right? So mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that was one of the highlights of Brightwater. When we sold the company, everybody did well. And we, you know, went out to Vegas for a week and just enjoyed ourselves. And <laughs> that's kind of, you know, what you're shooting for, right? And uh, uh, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So we did some golfing and, and uh, had some good dinners. And, but they do have to be incentivized because it's, it's a horse of a different color, without a doubt. When you go from a corporate, which is, you know, very tried and true, and to a startup, which is pretty risky. And yeah, they have to be incentivized, no doubt. That's fantastic. So tell us, were there any failures early on or, or real challenges? You mentioned almost throwing up a few times. Uh, <laughs> what it, kind of what are the types about that? Yeah, but yeah. No, I mean, come on, I, 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 I'm quite certain I've been there. But what, what are the types of things that that roll your stomach a little bit? Yeah, I would say without a doubt is it's having a company that's undercapitalized where mm -hmm. you, you just don't have the money in the bank and you're wondering if you're going to make payroll again. And it is not unique. It happens all the time. And it's, it's, it's very frightening. And so I, I would say, you know, something drags on a little bit longer than you thought, perhaps an en engineering process, a regulatory approval, perhaps you go out and you start a sales ramp and the, you know, the early sales just aren't there or you use a contract distributor and they're not hitting their numbers. It can be anything and, you know, shoot, you could even be going for regulatory approval and you get into biocompatibility or the FDA is looking at, you know, your pathway. Do you, you know, there, there are some 510K, you know, predicate devices that do require a clinical trial. And I just like an IVC filters one, it's a 510K pathway, but it's essentially a PMA pathway. You still have to do a clinical trial. And I remember our device Convertex was so unique and different that you know, I went out to the FDA and visited them and, and went through the whole thing with them and the value props. And they were, they were really, they were fantastic about it. But if they had come back and said, hey, we get it, everything looks good, but we still want you to do a clinical trial, that would have killed us. We didn't have the capital to do it. It would have been really tough to do it. So there were quite a few things, delays in the regulatory process, you're going to have it, delays or problems with well, we, we took ours a, a one step further. Not only did we get regulatory approval, but we, and did all the prototyping and, and internal bench testing and the appropriate preclinical animal studies, et cetera, et cetera. But we actually decided we would manufacture the device on site. And so, you know, that has its own issues as well. And there were many times where, you know, we would manufacture and then try it out and it just didn't work. You know, we had a friction point, we had a snare process. We had some pretty unique components to it uh, that allowed this thing basically almost like a sponge. It's a tube, but to stay together for, you know, 10 to 14 days or longer, you have to have the ability to pull the thing completely out of the body if you don't want to attach it. And then, you know, in two weeks, if you do want to detach it, you have to be able to sever it cleanly without any holdups. So, you know, it, we had some challenges in manufacturing this. We actually moved from a smaller facility into a very large facility, which cost more, but worked out better for us in Temecula, which is Southern California. And, you know, had to build out, I think it was a total of three different clean rooms, hire a staff of around uh, 15 to 20 assemblers um, at various stages, get all the equipment to build the product, bond it, test it, all of those things. And, you know, if there's a thousand steps into going from A to Z, you're going to have problems with, you know, with every one of them at some time. So, but probably for me, getting back to your original question, what was the, the, the hardest thing was just making sure we had capital to survive and to continue moving forward. That's so important. And, you know, 
I always got advice that when I was at biodesign, you'd hear, you know, my peers who had already been out raising funds, they say it's so important to raise more money than you think you need. You know, whatever you think it is, add 20% to it because you need to give yourself that runway and there are going to be problems you just don't predict. What you're predicting when you're putting together your operating plan is it's the perfect plan. I think that's what people. So you don't realize it is the perfect plan that never happens. <laughs> and so it's it's so critical to really kind of overestimate how much money you think you're going to need and then and then add some on top of that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and not only overestimate the money, but we tend to underestimate the time it takes to move to the next step. It it just never occurs in the the time that you think it would take. So you know, it, it, there's a, you know, raise, start raising funds at least six months before you need them, right? That's one of the things. And if you think it's going to be a, a year and a half or two years for regulatory approval, you, you might want to double it, you know, because it does take longer than you would expect. And so, you know, you have to prepare for those rainy days because there's quite a few of them that come along. Incredible. Okay. So tell me, when did it go from a zero to one in terms of potentially getting acquired by strategics. So did you have early sales? Did you have early adoption? And when did the strategics approach and what were they, what were, what were they looking for in an attractive target? Yeah. You know, when it's, when it's to the stage and really for, I would say for strategics, right? For those who are going to buy you the merits, the Boston scientific, the Medtronics, strikers, et cetera, those companies, uh, they are willing to pay quite a bit for a late stage company. Something that's very predictable, de-risked as we call it, that shows a you know revenue model, a compound annual growth rate. You know the the pieces are baked pretty solidly by that time, so they're willing to pay for it at that time. So when it comes down to you know doing this company, doing the device, just a you know it used to be if you had a great idea and it was in the back of a napkin and you could get a patent, then wow, you're you're there. Holy cow, you, you're not further from the truth than that. That's, that's really <laughs> away from the mark, right? So you have to not only get this device, show that there's adoption, show that it works, show that, you know, it, it can be used and get the regulatory approval, the reimbursement pathways established, the total or the, you know, total addressable market is large. You have some type of, you know, external validation that this is interesting. You get scale support. There's a thousand items and then. You know, it's that saying, I've heard it a hundred times that good companies aren't sold, they're bought, right? So you have to kind of develop the company and start to run it almost like it's going to be a standalone company. Now, there are very few devices that can survive in a standalone mode. So it's a little bit of a catch 22, but you kind of have to have the mindset that if the timing's off, if the strategics aren't looking in your wheelhouse, they're focused on something else. All those things impact whether your company will be bought. You just can't necessarily assume that when things are tidied up, you put it on the market and people are going to flock to come in to buy that because that is not the case at all. So one of the early things that you, I think you have to demonstrate is what we call the model. And that's even for if you're going to bring on sophisticated investors like venture capitalists, they need to know this. Or if you're going to sell the company and position it for an acquisition, there are several really important things you absolutely have to do. And so to show early traction is important. So you do have to establish one way or another, some type of an early sales model. It's pretty unusual nowadays. It's not unheard of, but it's pretty unusual that you can sell your product based 
only upon the product itself. You know, once you get past the hurdles of regulatory approval and IP and all those things, you really have to show that this device is going to be adopted in the hospital and, you know, be used and reordered. I mean, that's the big thing. They have to show a revenue ramp. And, you know, the gating person in any large company, whether it's Stryker, Medtronic, Med, you know, Merit that bought mine, is the business development person. That's the key person you need to get in front of. It's not the salesperson. It's not the engineering head. It's usually not even the president of the company. As a KOL, as a physician who may be a KOL, you could probably have access to all those people, but the person you really need to convince is the business development person, the BD person. That's a person who really is an MBA, right? They've gone through this with multiple companies. Many of them will be a salesperson who'll work their way up into a BD position and have an MBA, and they have to crunch the numbers. They have to know exactly what it takes to get this product into the hands of the salespeople in their company and do the math. So when I say showing the model, you do have to show revenue ramp. What are the touch points? You know, where are, where are the sticky areas for your product? If you have a salesperson, you know, how many hospitals do they have to go to build a territory? How many visits do they have to make to the hospital to get access? Uh, who's the physician champion or the nurse champion or the respiratory therapist champion, whoever? for that product, what the value analysis committee, the product committee looks like, uh, what's the economic story, you know, what's the pitch points. They need to really understand that. What's the reorder rate? What's a hospital look like that's well tended by the sales force? That is, they visit weekly. What do the sales look like? What's a hospital look like? Perhaps the salesperson comes in maybe once a month or twice a month. All those things are incredibly important to build the model. So at that time, you're going to have to build a revenue ramp story that shows that your quarter after quarter, your revenue is going up. At the same time, you have to show your supply chain. You know, what's it take to make the product? Where are your weaknesses in your supply chain? Who are your secondary and tertiary sources? What does it cost the bill of materials, the BOM or the COGS to put this together? What's your gross margin? Typically, they're looking for a gross margin of north of 70% for a medical device, an implantable medical device. And if you can start to show an 80% gross margin, that's great. And then your conversion rate. Like if you go in and you pitch this to a hospital or to a physician, yeah, you pitch it 10 times. What's your conversion rate? How many of those will become customers? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? What is it? And in our case, we had about a 90% conversion rate. And that's an incredibly important number to have. And then the reorder rate. Okay. Somebody uses it, but are they going to continue to use it? So you have to show a track record of, you know, what's the average reorder rate and it goes on and on and on. And as you could tell, there are a lot of ways to fail. I remember early on, I think we had 60 accounts and 20 of those were kind of so-so users. So we considered, well, maybe they're not that interested in the product. Maybe they would rather not order it and we take them off our roster because you don't want to have, you, you don't want to, you know, dilute your numbers. You want to show that you have something pretty interesting. So I would say to attract, let's say somebody who's going to buy the company like a Merit or Boston Scientific or any number of them, first of all, you have to be in the wheelhouse, right? If they're not into what you are developing, then no fault of theirs, they're not going to look at it. It's not interesting enough. The second thing is you have to be able to credibly demonstrate that there's a very large market opportunity. Third, that there's a credible economic story at the stakeholder level. And then fourth, to some degree, you're going to have to show a revenue ramp. 
that there is adoption, use, re reuse of the product. And all of those are very challenging and all of those are potentially minefields that you'll have to walk through to make sure you have something interesting. That is a lot of stuff. So what I hear from you is there's a lot of work that needs to be done at every step of the way. It's a lot of work. And I know that's coming through to our listeners. Yeah. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that you're, you're dealing with skeptics and appropriately. So, you know, they have to, you know, it, no matter, I used to always tell my staff that no matter how excited we get somebody on a pitch from a venture capital group or a potential acquirer, they have to bring that excitement and that information back to their investment committee, which usually occurs within about a week or so. And on the committee, they're going to be facing six other huge skeptics, right? Well, what do you mean you think the growth is going to be X, Y, and Z? Can they demonstrate it, right? And there's going to be a whole series of boxes that you have to check. For example, the first time we got a diligence list from a venture capital group, a very large one that had, you know, tens of billion under management, I think it was 27 pages long was the the diligence list that we got and you know these probably 10 to 15 questions on each page and literally took about a week to go through that and successfully answer all the questions and yeah it's it's an arduous trip there's no doubt you, you just kind of be prepared for that and as a physician we're in a sense we're used to doing it all right you know when we go in to do a, a procedure a surgery or read a stack of x-rays you know we know it all we could do it by ourselves but Early on, I, I think this is a more of a journey than a destination. So you have to be prepared for the journey because it is a long journey. You absolutely cannot do it all. And you have to be pretty humble about that. If you think you can do everything from development to commercialization, then chances are you're, you're probably not going to, to make it. And so you have to be able to lean on people and bring in the proper people who know what they're doing. It makes total sense to me. So tell me, after all this, would you do it again? Are you happy being an entrepreneur versus practicing? Is, is this something you'd recommend for others? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because when I, when I sold Brightwater, pretty high time, right? Pretty good time. Mm -hmm. Things worked yeah. out well. Oh yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm done. And then about, I'd say literally maybe six weeks, maybe eight weeks at the most, I was just, I was walking up walls, you know, what am I going <laughs> to do? Right. <laughs> so, so I, I, there's only so much you can do. Right. And, and then. A good friend of mine who was an early investor in the company goes, Bob, you learned all of this, right? How to, yeah, from A to Z, what's needed, where the problems are. I said, well, it doesn't mean I'm going to be successful a second time, but he goes, it's kind of a shame to waste that. And I, I felt the same way. So then I called up Chaz Taylor and I said, Chaz, you interested in getting into business together and maybe doing this again? And so yeah, we said, yeah. And so we started vetting companies. We decided we would go into more of a later stage company that maybe had an interesting technology, but perhaps wasn't developed appropriately or the marketing wasn't right, or perhaps the commercialization pathway was difficult. So we decided to do it again. So the answer I would say, Brian, is yes. And since that, you know, I do sit on a board of a multinational company now. I am, you know, a president of another company that we're, I'd say, rebooting, developing, doing U.S. and international sales and contemplating doing another company and actually looking at a couple opportunities. I don't think I would be as hands-on as I was with Brightwater or that I am with Respiratory Motion. I think I would rather be more at the board level and be involved and do what I can do to help, but not so much in the day-to-day -day operations, just simply because it's very time-consuming. But yeah, I, I think the bottom line is, yes, I would do it again. Yeah. And I am. So now that's great. That's awesome. 
any recommendations for, for our listeners on books to read that helped you maybe along the way? I, I tell you, there, there's a book I'd recommend, but I didn't read until afterwards, after I'd already sold Brightwater and actually mm -hmm. started something else. Um, but I thought it was a pretty good eye-opener, Chaos Monkeys. Okay. You know, have you heard about that one? I don't know. I have you, not. It's an inside look at Silicon Valley. Okay. And, you know, that, that whole thing, and not that I would, I'm from the Midwest, so we tend not to do that, but a fake it till you make it type of <laughs> mentality. But it's a, yep. it's a good look behind the the doors of multiple big companies, Facebook, et cetera. And so it's, it's a, it's a little ribald at times, but it's called chaos monkeys. And it's a very interesting read. I don't know if you ever listened to like CNBC squawk box mm -hmm. and investment oh, yeah. and Joe Kernan and, and those guys, they talked about it for a while too on that. And it was recommended to me by, by a good friend of mine who was an investor. He said, Hey, take a look at this book. See what you think chaos monkeys. And I found it a, a delightful and, and humorous read that kind of opened the kimono a little bit to see what yep. really goes on behind the scenes. Because yep. I tell you, externally, when you look at these companies, and I did the same thing, when, even when I was somewhat more intimately involved in these startups, you, you really don't see what's going on. You see a pretty well-oiled machine that is absolutely anything but <laughs> because you're not privy to the inside information. You know, it's, it's incredible. You know, that's, uh, that's a great recommendation. I'm going to take a look at that. So thank you so much, Bob. We really appreciate it. I'd love to go through a, a quick summary. I think it's quick. I don't know. I've, I've got a lot here. So tell me if uh, anything is wrong here, but I'm just going to run through some summary points that I have here. Okay. So number one, startup life is attractive. Uh, why is that? You, you enjoyed building and growing something, taking ownership of it and getting it to an exit. Number two, 90% of device startups will fail. Uh, lots of highs, lots of lows may make you want to be sick from time to time. Uh, <laughs> you got to keep a level steady pace and, and, and really keep going. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint is what I'm hearing, but it's also a sprint at certain times. <laughs> uh, it's very expensive to build a startup. You're talking about red water space where there's already lots of predicates, lots of competitors is still five to $10 million. Uh, you want to go PMA beyond that, and it's uh, exponentially more money. Make sure you do an analysis of your potential technology. You did a 360-degree uh, technical analysis, and that's it's very important to understand your regulatory reimbursement value pathway, the value you're going to provide to the hospital, to all the stakeholders, before, before you commit all this time, money, and effort going down this road. Because as everyone can hear, it's, it's not easy. Survey physicians. Uh, this is one time I, I, I am so glad you brought that up. It is so crucial to be able to survey and not just physicians, survey all your stakeholders who, who, are, who are important and are going to be making decisions uh, because you're going to miss something and it's going gonna, it's gonna to just be staring you in the face once you, once you talk to them and you'll be able to pivot and also provide that data to your investors to show that you do you do have early traction from uh, at least in, in, a, in a theoretical framework uh, that they can go on. You mentioned soft money versus hard money. I've never heard that term before, but it makes total sense. Soft money saves hospital money, which you said every device is going to purport to save the hospital money. Hard money, that's actually you're making the hospital money. So uh, additional revenue is coming in much easier to pitch that to a hospital. And therefore it's going to be much easier to pitch that to any potential investors. If you are increasing 
the amount of revenue they're bringing in, not just cutting costs. Don't underestimate the time and money required to develop a new device. Can't say this enough. It's almost always more expensive and takes longer than you expect. I'm putting together uh, my operating plan and it is, uh, I realize I probably need to go back and double everything. So that's a, it's a good reminder. On getting acquired, good companies aren't sold, they're bought. I think that's, that's the mindset you have to have. You have to go in saying you are going to build a profitable business. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to show early traction. You're going to get sales. And that's, that's critical because you don't know whether the strategic is going to purchase you. You may have perfect alignment with them at the beginning. And they may say they want to acquire you, but things change. What if your business development person who you've been interfacing with leaves? You cannot count on being acquired. You need to be in it to build a business. And you're going to need a team for sure to do that. And you need a long-term mindset to do that. And then finally, developing a device is a journey, not a destination. I think that's so apt. It's perfect for this. Really just enjoy the ride, lots of ups and downs. And from what I hear, you'd still do it all again. So did I miss anything, Bob? <laughs> no, I, I, I think you got it all. You know, <laughs> hey, listen, you, the one thing you did miss is that if you think I know what I'm talking about, you, you misunderstood me because uh, I, I really don't. I mean, I don't know about that. You sound pretty good to me. This, there's this a lot more stumbles. To, yeah, well, you know, if you fake it till you make it has, has it, you, you, you've convinced me. <laughs> well, maybe so, but it's so weird. I mean, if you look at someone who's got a long track record of success, they've maybe done two or three companies. That's it. I mean, holy cow. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a challenging place to be, but it's, it, I think it's worth it. I, I wish I started it earlier too. I would say mm -hmm. that's one thing to take away. Okay. Also. I will definitely include that as well. <laughs> um, so, all right. That was incredible, Bob. Thank you so much. I know we've taken up a lot of your time, but you have total zingers, um, and, and just perfect points. And it's, it shows that it's very practical knowledge because you, you've, you literally, it's blood, sweat, and tears to get this knowledge. I can tell, but it worked out. I'm so happy for you and love your enthusiasm to do it again. So really appreciate it. Would love to have you on uh, at another point. If I can, uh, there's just too much here to get into all of it, honestly. <laughs> Brian, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. 